This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Michelle Dowd, author of the memoir, Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult. We were taught that boys needed to exert themselves physically and they needed to find dominance, that that was a very, very important part of male biology. We'll be back with Michelle Dowd after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. 
please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with writer and teacher Michelle Dowd. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Book Review, The Alpinist, Catapult, and other national publications. She was Faculty Lecturer of the Year in 2022 at Chaffee College, where she founded the award-winning literary journal and creative collection, The Chaffee Review. Her memoir, Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult, tells the story of her childhood growing up on an isolated mountain in California as part of an apocalyptic cult that her grandfather started in the 1930s. Known as the field, the ultra-religious cult taught followers that comfort and care are sins, that the Bible is to be taken literally, and that the patriarch dominates. Dowd faced abuse, sickness, hunger, isolation, and poverty growing up on the mountain, preparing for doomsday. We began with Michelle Dowd discussing the impetus for her memoir, Forager. I feel like my whole life, people have been asking me where I come from, just in a, a really casual, normal way. And at the beginning, when I first was in college, I would give, you know, just one or two sentences of the truth. (laughs) And um, people sounded so shocked. And so I found that for the first at least 10 years after I left the mountain, I would give a vague generalization like, um, well, I was kind of homeschooled or a phrase like I was raised very religious. And then I would drop it. And so um, over the years, even as I got closer to people, I found that it was very difficult to explain where I came from and that there was a pretty big barrier between my experience, like with things like pop culture or here's one that a colleague gave me a really hard time about. I don't know the presidents. Like I still haven't learned them since (laughs) I didn't go to school in the traditional ways where you learn the things that people think every American knows. And there's just these gaps in my um, knowledge of not only pop culture, but also in, I guess, the way we civilize, (laughs) you know, Americans. And so when I had the opportunity to try to um, talk about it, I realized that I, I honestly couldn't do it in an essay. Let's put a pen in that. Probably the more honest and full answer is simply, I did not plan on writing this book. More than one agent contacted me after a modern love piece I did to the New York times. And I decided um, after getting a request to do a proposal uh, to go ahead and let her put it on the market. And it sold within a week. And once I had a contract, then I just was backed into a corner and I thought, okay, now I'm going to write it. So both of those are true. (laughs) Two different versions of the truth. So can you describe a little bit about where you grew up? There's kind of two places that are central in your book. One is the mountain and one is the field. And then we can talk a little bit about the belief system there. Well, the physical space of the fields um, where my parents and my grandparents worked and lived um, was basically in a suburban cul-de-sac cleared out former dump space. And it was a series of ball fields and a church. And the people who um, were devoted to my grandfather lived there and worked there and 
courted young people, mostly boys, to devote their lives to a very specific version of God. I was there uh, for the first seven years of my life. And then we moved to the mountain. The mountain was about two hour drive uh, at that time. Now there's freeways, but there weren't at the time. Um, So the two hour drive away separated us from the fields geographically. But the mountain was also owned by my grandfather who ran the fields. And so his intent was to have a spiritual retreat center on the mountain. And my parents were going to sort of develop the space to help that happen. So while we lived there, some of the field people would come up and they would learn about God um, separated from the rest of the world. And so we, my siblings and I, would live on the mountain, but we would also go down to the field and go back and forth according to what seems like very arbitrary distinctions. Like sometimes we would go down there and sometimes we wouldn't. We did have young men living with us, but those were people who had misbehaved in some way um, or were questioning in some way, and they were sent to the mountain to get clean and get straight. Mm, clean makes it sound like they're on drugs. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> to get clean of worldly temptations. So can you describe the belief system of this world that you were born into? Your grandfather with, was the leader. This was your mother's father. And um, it was very structured and had a lot of rules and dogma. Can you talk about what the backbone of that was? I think at base, it was a very strong fundamentalist uh Protestant religious structure that was based on the Bible as inerrant, um, the inerrant word of God. But the Bible was interpreted by my grandfather, who determined which verses and which chapters or which books of the Bible were given more credence. Things that didn't make sense, like maybe Song of Solomon, were just not talked about. So there were just books of the Bible that were left out. And I think that's honestly very common in many churches. Um, But beyond that, my grandfather was the only one who had the authority to make decisions. There was nothing written down other than a really small, um, like they had a promise and laws. Like I promise by the strength of Christ to be pure, brave, and true. That phrases like that, um, that we all memorized. But the real truth was my grandfather would change his mind quite frequently about what the goal was. Um, It was always that God would test you. He would test your physical endurance. He would test your emotional endurance, your psychological endurance. And the most important thing was to never become part of the outside world. Because that temptation used to say it was like the YMCA. Like the YMCA used to be a young man's Christian organization. And then they became somehow um, secular. And so it was very, very important that we lived separate from the rest of the world. And we never considered ourselves to be part of a city, a state, or a country but that we were in the army of God. It was a very rigid and structured belief system. And you were one of four children. You were second in line. And your mom, in many ways, was was quite cold. She didn't have affection. At the very end of the book, you meet someone that she knows, and this woman didn't even know that she had kids. She was very strict. She taught you to forage. She taught you how to live off the land, but she really was not taking any emotion from you. If you were sad, if you were sick, like there was none of that. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your parents? Well, my mom died um, this last year and at her service, which I ended up 
uh, speaking at, at the field, they wrote an obituary and they did not include that she had children in the obituary, as in she's survived by her husband and her many students. And my younger sister mentioned to me, she sent it to me and she said, how, how is it possible? Do they not know that you're supposed to mention that they have children and grandchildren? And I said, well, I just don't think that that's important to them. And I think that's evidence. And my, and my father was there and he didn't think it was odd that it didn't mention that she had children. My father mentioned that he can't remember us as children because he was never there. And I said to him, this is right after my mom's death. I said, well, because mom was home. And he said, well, I don't think she was there either. And this was a direct quote from him, which I don't use in the book because this is just took place very recently. He said, I realized that we divorced ourselves from you. If I had to do it again, I might have tried to have you come be with us once a month. I might have prioritized that. But he said, I I felt and your mother felt that we our job was to run the organization and God would take care of you. That's a conversation that I had recently. Uh, and that seems very accurate to what it was like to be a child of parents who believed that God, not not a caregiver, not like someone that they put in line to care for us, but this idea of God would be the one to protect us. So as God in the Bible says, you know, if God clothes the lilies of the fields, how much more will he clothe you? My parents just believed that those things would be provided by God. And so my mom specifically, I think, I think because she's a mother, it seems strange because she didn't do the general caregiving that mothers do, like every mother I've ever met does, at least on some level or tries to do. My mom really believed that she was not training us to be part of God's army if she intervened by coddling us or giving special attention. She thought nepotism was a sin and that she should never put her children first. As a child, you were very sick and you were in and out of the hospital a lot in your like pubescent years. And it seemed to me reading this, that this was a gift in a way, because you got to be in hospital, you got to get food, you got to read books, you got exposure to things that you might not have had exposure anywhere else. That's one of the things I took from the book, but I'm wondering what you, what your reaction to that is. It took me a long time to accept it as a gift um, because at the time it was a very painful existence, but yes, I would agree with you. Um, so of the leader's kids, my grandfather had 15 biological children, but the leader's kids who were raised in my cohort, shall we say, the first nine of us who were born in about two years, I was the first one to leave. And of the first nine of us born there, I'm the only one to this day who has left. And I attribute that to my time in the hospital, because had I not been exposed to at least some degree of normalcy, some if I hadn't witnessed other families, if I had not been cared for by nurses and doctors who had my best interest at heart, I don't think I would have known that there was such a thing out there anywhere. I also don't think I would have had the courage to stand up to a system. And my courage, I think, was honestly very low on my, on my bar of courage. I don't think it was a lot of courage. I think it was sort of desperation. But I don't think I would have known um, to ask for anything else or to look for anything else had I not been basically sequestered for about three and a half years away from, it's not that I never interacted with the organization during that time. It was that I wasn't there full time. And so I wasn't part of the constant indoctrination. So yes, I do see it as a gift. 
So the perspective you took as the writer is not retrospective. You're not really writing from the person you are now with all of this knowledge. You're writing in a way that it's happening. So you start off, I think you're around nine when we start and we follow you into your teen years and we're seeing the world you see through the eyes. So you're, you're describing it as that young child as things happen. So I'm curious about taking that narrative stance, if you could share more about that. That was a very deliberate choice, um, as was to determine the years that I um, follow in real time as a child from the time we get to the mountain to the time that I leave the mountain, which was almost exactly 10 years. I chose to tell it that way because at the time I was living it, it didn't make sense to me. And I also understand having, you know, been educated and having become a teacher that my understanding of the organization now is much different than my understanding while I was living it. And while I was growing up there, especially having been born there, there was no other worlds. And if I tell the story, even now, if I if I try to tell you the story from the perspective of an adult who is analyzing what happened, it's very hard not to look at the intent of other players in the story. And I felt that the danger was to try to say, well, this is what my mom was trying to do. And this is what my dad was trying to do. This is my grandpa's intent when he began the organization. Or these are what the other uh, young people who joined or decided to stay. Like, this is what they were intending to do. And I feel to this day, that's very convoluted because there are so many different versions of why people were there. And choosing to tell the story from a child born there who believed in what she was being told until she started questioning it. It gave me the liberty to unfold the community more in real time so that the reader is learning more about the world as I, as a narrator, am learning more about the world. And so it felt like a vehicle that was more honest and fair to say from this vantage point, this is what I saw and not try to make distinctions between what was happening simultaneously, for example, at the field when I was on the mountain or what was happening on the mountain while I was at the field, but instead to use my own lens and, and move through space as I saw it. It felt like a way of inviting readers into the space um, rather than trying to explain it like a painting, you know, like here's what you're looking at. There's some things that are clear and some things that are not clear. And what I mean by that, it's because of your perspective when you're there. Like you're not really exactly sure what went on in your grandfather's life. You know, he reveres the army. You know that he really wants order. As you said earlier, he would sometimes change his mind about things. But you're not really clear about what went on for him and how that happened. One thing you are incredibly clear about is the role of women. They are generally a second class citizens. You have some lines there when you say women know how to keep going. We were made to support men's dreams. That's something that you quoted your mom as saying. You said dad teaches us not to trust our body or its signals. Um, another place you say the field is good at creating fear. So there's a few elements to the fear and your body, but it's such a strong message throughout this book that women 
are are chattel. They are, you know, to be ruled by men. And that's very strong in your book, including some abuse that took place. Can you talk about men and women in this community? Well, the Bible is very patriarchal to begin with. And um, in my opinion, very misogynistic. So the stories of the Bible that start with Eve being the one responsible for the downfall of humankind, um, those stories lend themselves to having a male privileged perspective. I, I spoke to all my family and interviewed everyone uh, as I was writing the book. And one thing my father would say over and over when I'd ask him, he said, it never occurred to me what girls were doing. It never, I, I have no idea. He also said that he never saw my grandparents, which were his in-laws, ever. He never saw them in private, ever. He never was inside their home. He wasn't given access. And so when I said, Dad, there'll probably be some very uncomfortable things in this book for you. But a lot of it, I realize, is stuff you never saw. You know, he, he never came to the hospital, for example. He did not believe it was his responsibility to be in my life. And I, I say this to say that... Even though I'm I'm looking at the 1970s and 1980s, they were trying to live as if they were part of the Old Testament. They were that's who they saw as role models. They saw David, and for example, when David, um, for those who don't know the biblical story of King David, who sees this woman bathing and decides that he must have her and calls her in Bathsheba um, and has an affair with her, it's her perspective is never given in the story. And then when she finds out that she's pregnant and tells him that he orders her husband to the front line to be killed. There's one other step in there. He brings, he invites her husband back as a soldier and sends him home to sleep with his wife so that he can pretend it's her, you know, the husband's baby. Um, and he refuses to do that out of honor. And so then David has him killed. That story was taught to us as if that was a normal way for a man to behave and that God understood that men have needs and that the problem was Bathsheba was taking her bath on the roof somewhere. Uh, the story does sort of imply it's some sort of roof, but I don't understand the you know particular camp arrangements that would have been for her Bathsheba. But the story is not really, was not taught to me as a story of adultery as much as it was taught as a story of a woman who tempted a man. And so her son that she has um, from this quote affair that she was forced into having what well, dies um, is killed by God um, as punishment for David's sin. And then Bathsheba has to marry David after her husband's dead. And then she goes on to give birth to Solomon and works very, very hard to make sure that her son then has the rights to the kingdom. That was also told to us as a story that God needs women to raise the next soldiers of God. And so Bathsheba's role then was to create the next king. Those kinds of stories that were taught in the organization to the men and the women were, were very much about the pitfalls of sex and the pitfalls of attraction and the pitfalls of any sort of temptation that women bring men, but that women are necessary to bear children. And that was taught through sports as well. It's um, the organization was very big on playing tackle football um, and teaching boys to play tackle football from the age of five. And most of the men that I know um, who have come out of the organization have very positive memories of playing football because it was, you know, it's a very fun sport, I think, um, if you're raised 
um, to enjoy that kind of action. And we were taught that that boys needed to exert themselves physically and they needed to find dominance, that that was a very, very important part of male biology. And that a girl's job was to keep herself as clean as possible to bear the seed of the future generations. And all of our education in whatever degree we were educated was on that bifurcation of men needing one way and women needing another. Now, my father, and this feels relevant, because we were on the mountain, before we were on the mountain, this wasn't true. But once we were on the mountain and we were separated from the field, my father then treated us as sons. And so then he required us to do a lot of really intense physical activity. And that was because he didn't, he had three daughters before he had a son. And he really did want us to be able to survive on the mountain the way my mother taught us to survive. But I see it now as his own version of doing us a favor, you know, uh, is that he was very clear that you should not count on a man and that um, you always have to take care of yourself. And so you need to be able to be strong enough to endure whatever elements are thrown at you, uh, whatever deprivation, and you should be willing to sacrifice yourself for the will of God and that you will never know what the will of God is until God tests you. And so you must endure those tests. So there were very, there were many fewer girls at the organization than there were boys. That was about, for the most part, um, three to one. Probably in the large organization, it was five to one. They would call from a lot, lot, a lot more um, young boys to try to uh, hone in the ones they wanted to keep. Um, by the time we got to the top, it was about three to one because at that point you do you did need some women to bear children. It's it's interesting because there's also something like you were taught all this. But there was something inside of you that knew that you had fear. There was predation going on. Well, right. Because so many, so many of those men didn't have access to women's bodies. And they were taught that they had a right to that. And there weren't enough women around. And so as a young girl, I was incredibly vulnerable, more so than many. And I'm not saying I was the only victim, but... I was more vulnerable than many because we were often left unattended because we always had male babysitters. Always. My mom didn't want us to have any women take care of us because she thought they might coddle us. So we always had boys taking care of us and we were put in a position where there was no one to tell if any of these boys took advantage of us. And I don't know to this day, I've, I've tried to have conversations. I tried with my mom and she would either hang up the phone or just shut down completely and not talk about it. When I said, mom, I hated to like put it this way, but it, I was like, I'm sure he didn't get money, but did grandpa use me as a way to get boys to do what he wanted because they could have this as a reward? <clears throat> she would never answer that question. She certainly didn't say no. So I, I was definitely the victim of uh, physical and sexual predation when I was very young, uh, systemically. Yeah. And I think that's what I think is so fascinating when I think about when you're indoctrinated into something. I mean, you were indoctrinated into a certain point of view, but you still knew enough to be uh, fearful. You still knew enough to know that that was wrong. And so that it's amazing to me that not everybody could leave because it feels like there's something innately human in your understanding of the difference between right and wrong, even though you had this very limited education about how the world works. I think it was a very shame-based 
organization. I think that rigid systems, um, controlled organizations um, probably need to impart shame on their participants in order to keep them. And I can say that I put out um, sort of an informal question about three years ago where I said, if anybody wants to talk to me about what your experience was, I will listen. And so I have heard stories of other people who were also abused during the times, during roughly the, the same decade that I was. And to a T, everyone felt to this day, and I put myself in this category as well, that we must have done something to have caused it. In addition to, to just sort of being there, um, it's as if, but I should have not allowed myself to be the one who was in that room. Everyone tried to tell in some way. Everyone tried to reach out to talk, to talk to somebody, but you're shut down before it, you could really get out because it was like, what did you do? What did you do? Did you cause that? You know, so it was it was flipped on his head. Um, did I know it was wrong? Yes, of course. I, yes, I knew it was wrong. But I also felt for, I want to say decades, that I could have resisted more than I did when I was seven years old, you know, that I should have stopped it, that I should have uh, fought back in a way that would have hurt somebody. And it took me a long time, like learning techniques um, later in life of self-defense. Like my, when I was even self-defense class and stuff, my instinct is just to crawl into a little ball, you know, that as to make myself smaller instead of um, fighting back. And it's taken a great deal of sort of what I would say reprogramming to think that I have a right to fight back in any area of my life, let alone physically. Do you think that you were born with something that, allowed you to strike out? I mean, we talked earlier about your opportunities at the hospital, but do you think there was something innate in you that maybe you didn't see in some of the people who stayed that was just a fighter, a rebel, a questioner that also allowed you to leave? Yes. And um, some of that might have been biological and some of it might have been uh, the result of very subtle nepotism. Uh, my grandfather was a rebel to begin with in the sense of leaving his family and being a young man who never kept a job, never did things the way that other people wanted him to do, didn't support his family, but became what would be a cult leader. But really, he was already running a cult by the time he was 30 years old. You know, so he had he rebelled against the things that society asked him to do and said, I'm going to create my own world. My mother was born there. And then she managed, she actually got educated. Her father allowed her to go to school. She got a degree um, in biology and actually her first degree was in zoology. And so that's the only degree she had when, um, you know, I was growing up, but she had that because her father wanted her to be able to talk to the outside world. She was the, his fourth child, but she was the strongest communicator. And so I think my mother showed me, she didn't tell me it was rebellion, but she showed me what rebellion looked like by pretending to obey all the rules that her father imparted on her. And then when he wasn't around and she was in the mountain doing exactly what she wanted. And so I think that I saw from my mother how to break the system, um, even though, and I, I think actually to this day that my mother uh, allowed me to leave that when it really comes down to it, she didn't want all of her daughters to stay because she knew it was a dangerous place. I really, truly believe that on some level, she could have um, indoctrinated me to stay. And instead, she 
she saw what was happening and allowed it to happen, but she didn't keep me from leaving. Um, and there must've been a part of her probably from when I was very young who allowed me to start thinking on my own. I have an aunt, one of the um, wives I'm, I'm careful not to identify because not everyone wants their story told, but she, uh, my mom had three brothers who were older than her. And one of the wives, um, my aunt, she told me on uh, multiple occasions, but I interviewed her and she told me that um, when my mother was pregnant with me, that she said that if she, obviously they wanted a boy, but if they had another girl, that was the most important thing was that the girl not be attractive, that that was the biggest curse that could be put on a girl is to be attractive. And then my aunt said, and then here you were, you were born this little golden child. Like you looked nothing like your sister, but you looked like were this little light that just came out. And she looked at you and just said, apparently she literally said, do not pick her up. Do not touch her. Do not coddle her. Um, she can't be given attention because it will destroy her. And so I think on some level, not being given attention made me seek it. And then um, I, by, I mean, the kind of attention I saw it was the kind of attention that was about how does the world work? You know, why, you know, why are things the way they are? And I just started asking questions, I think, from the, the moment I could talk. So I definitely think that that was in me from the beginning. I just don't think that I, I would label it as rebellion in the early ages. I would label it as curiosity. And then I would say that it just never made sense to me, this world. Like once I started getting more knowledge, it did not make sense to me. Like it just felt like an incredibly unjust system. In addition to being ill, you also didn't eat. You were trying to, in some ways, maybe metaphorically or poetically disappear, but you weren't eating. You didn't want to get womanly. You didn't want to have your period. I mean, you knew in, in a way how to protect yourself, but that also um, complicated things for you because you didn't have energy or you would have to go back to the hospital. And eventually you did take a bunch of pills and it was a, a suicide attempt. And when you were at the hospital, you met a psychiatrist who I thought that was a really big turning point in your story and in the book where he basically said to you, look, I can see that you're a smart girl and you have two ways to go here. You can enter the system, go to the psychiatric ward and be in the system forever, or you can do whatever you can to endure for a few more months or one more year and then get out. And what are you really going to do? And I'm curious about your thoughts about this doctor and if you want to share more about that story. I would label um, what I had when I was younger as anorexia. I don't call it that in the book because that is not a word that was used um, at the time. It may have been used somewhere at the time, but it was not used with me. Um, and it did make me weak and it did make me um, smaller and it did stop my periods. So it, it was useful. When I spoke to my younger sister during the early stages of writing the book, she brought up and I, I never told her what I was writing on specifically. She said, oh, I remember that time you got picked up in an ambulance and I never knew what happened. Is there like what happened that day? And we had not spoken of it since. And so when I explained told that story to um, people in my adult life. It's not a common story I've told, but when I've told like someone I'm close to, um, the the initial reaction would often be like, that was really irresponsible. That doctor should have like not given you, I mean, that's like too much power to give to you. And also like there should have been protocol in place. And it didn't occur to me he was irresponsible. I don't, I don't really know, wouldn't know how to this day to make that assessment, but I will say that I have eternally been grateful, like eternally in the sense of like every moment of my life since I met him, because I felt that he empowered me. 
I mean, obviously, I don't know. Maybe had I gotten part of the system, I would have gotten the support that I needed to get out and I would have been fine either way. Like, I can't know that. Um, But he saw me in a way that I felt no one had ever seen me before. I felt like I was weak. I thought I looked weak. I thought I was just a really weak person, which is why I couldn't get along in the system that I was in. And he saw me as strong and he saw me as capable of making a choice like that. And I assume, I I can't tell you how old he was. Um, I assume that he was at the end of his career and he had seen a lot. And he was just like, I've seen this go poorly for people who, you know, find themselves um, as victims in the system. And so it just felt to me that he was doing me just such an incredible, I want to say favor, but more than that, he was giving me this gift of agency. I don't think I saw myself as weak after that. I thought saw myself as wily, you know, that someone who could pretend to be something and then start working on. I felt like I had like a little spoon and I was digging myself out super, super slowly after that. Like it was not like this, like I'm walking out the gate and I'm free, but it was like, okay, now I know where to hide my tools and I can start, you know, planning and finding a way to dig my way out. And what was your experience? It sounds like you did interview a lot of people for this book and you were excommunicated. You went to college, you live in the outside world, you don't have the same beliefs anymore. So what was your experience going back to talk to all these people? And maybe you've had relationships with them the whole time and now you're approaching them with different questions. I don't know. Well, most of the people that I interviewed had left. They were excommunicated. Um, so they reached out to me and I've had people reach out to me long before I was writing the book because I am the founder's granddaughter and because my parents were very influential there. So sometimes um, people reach out to me and tell me their story. Now, there's also social media and I um, have my birth name. And so people have definitely contacted me also to criticize me. For example, um, I was at a rally in 2016 and I, there was a picture of me and I got um, a bunch of the guys who, one of whom had actually hurt me back in the day, they wrote me publicly. They they posted um, a bunch of things about how my grandfather was crying in heaven over what an awful human being I'd become and the way that I was destroying the Lord. And it, it took me, I mean, I didn't even see it because I wasn't like, you know, looking. And then I, I saw that and I thought it would hurt more than it did. Um, and some of those people had left. And so I'm saying that like some people who left will come to me and say, just so you know, your grandfather did this thing that really hurt me. And some people will say, you know, you're embarrassing your grandfather by not being a woman of God. And I get both. Um, I would say more, more people are supportive than not. Um, The people still at the organization, that's a whole different category. Um, But I will will tell a brief story about one uh, man who's probably 10 to 15 years older than me. And he was on a public page um, talking about some horrible things that my grandfather had done. And he said, no one's ever apologized to me for this. Nobody in the organization has ever apologized. And I sent him a private message because I knew who he was. I remembered him from growing up. And I said, I would like to apologize to you on behalf of my family. I know that what my grandfather did and my parents hurt you very much. I see this. I see you. I know that it has created sadness in your life that has been irreparable. And I can't even tell you how much comfort he found in that. He said, it wasn't your fault. I said, I know, I know, but I see that my family did that to you. And 
he was just overwhelmed and he just wrote me a lot after that. And he said, thank you so much. Thank you for taking responsibility for your family's actions. And I thought that probably that happened before I was writing the book, but I think about that sometimes when I know that I'll get a lot of resistance, I think, but there are people out there who have never gotten any acknowledgement that they were hurt. And this will give them at least a little bit of comfort knowing that they weren't the only one. What was your experience overall writing this? Like, did you have to, I mean, I'm assuming that since you've left, you've had therapy and have done a lot of work on yourself to accept yourself and, and know that, you know, you are not responsible for some of these things that happened to you and have a lot of grace for yourself, but then you had to go back into it like in a really present way. So how was that for you? So I wrote this book during COVID um, where I was already isolated. And I think that does make a difference. Once the proposal sold, um, I was given a contract where I had about nine months to write the book. And I thought that that seemed like a short amount of time and I better get going. I wrote the whole thing in about four months, um, cover to cover, by just completely inhabiting my younger self. And I don't know that I would have been able to do that if I wasn't basically quarantined during COVID. I was teaching. I was teaching full-time online, but I wasn't going out. And so that changed, I think, the nature of my ability. I would get up. I would get up early in the morning when it was dark. And uh, I had um, two people living with me in in my home. Uh, My daughter was still living with me and my partner. And I would wake up early in the morning and light a candle and write in the dark to candlelight by hand. And I wrote the story like I was a child writing letters and like learning to write almost, you know, uh, by hand. And then in the afternoon, I would um, put it into the computer. And so I would have a draft and then I would do the next day by hand again, that would take it to the next steps so that I was always generating new material in almost a dreamlike state um, by myself um, with candlelight. And I think that really made a difference. It reminded me of being alone in the mountains without electricity at the beginning. It was, it put me back into that headspace, and that just, it enabled me to really, again, be the person I had been instead of, like you said, all the, all the people I've become since then that have learned, you know, some degree of healing. Um, I'm sure my children would say that I have not healed altogether. <laughs> They'll sometimes still say like, you still use work to escape or you still have, you know, issues with eating or, you know, my, my daughter's one, my, one of my daughters is a therapist. And, um, so they're very, they're very woke. Um, and I mean, I don't mean that sarcastically. They, they are very, um, they are better people. They're more adjusted than I am, you know, in the world. And so sometimes they'll not, not, they're not, they're very kind about it, but sometimes they'll call me out on like still having eating disorders or not. I'm using exercises as an escape or, you know, some of the habits that I learned in my early childhood. And I think that I, I mentioned this to say that I, I didn't want to approach even talking about this book in a way that says that I am fully healed. I think that it has really made an impact on, on my ability to move safely in the world. And, and yes, I've been to therapy and yes, I have um, done a lot of group work and I have done, um, I've, I've read many, 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 many books on the subject, but I still feel that that little girl inside of me is still there. And it wasn't as hard as I thought to tap into her. Is there one book that helped you more than any other? 
either as a writer or, or just it therapy wise that healed, that helped heal you more than anything else you would suggest? It's hard to choose just one. Um, Lydia Yuknovich's Chronology of Water was very influential to me. Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison was um, an early one. I, I actually got an opportunity to go to lunch with Toni Morrison when I was 18. I mean, she had written, but she was not like on a major stage at that point. And it was uh, life changing for me. Um, and I read Song of Solomon after I met her. But also Ursula Le Guin has been very influential, uh, Left Hand of Darkness, and, you know, just thinking about worlds um, from different perspectives. You know, this book is called Forager, and you um, were taught by your mom to survive. She taught you, I mean, her, her knowledge of plants, edible plants, medicinal plants was, was really incredible and very awesome. And when you open, you're kind of living off the land and what you can eat. You, you open each chapter with a field note, with a plant and then explanation of the plant or a pine cone. And you were so enmeshed in nature. There was so much acreage at the mountain and just wanted to ask you about the, the natural world and the formation or the um, structure of the book this way. So the structure of the book is, is very intentional, just like the two locations, the mountain and the fields. Um, in my mind, uh, the bifurcation of mountain and field was also that the field was where we learned the patriarchal language of the King James Bible, and that that was very influential into the way that I even thought inside my own head. I did speak the language of the Bible internally. But the, the mountain is where we learned the language of nature. And our mother, who by all intents and purposes, believed every word of the patriarchal, you know, indoctrination we received also spoke a different language because there was a mother tongue inside my mother. And that was the language of nature. And she spoke it fluently. She understood the land. She understood how to eat off of the land. Um, the notes that I include are legitimately my mother's notes from notebooks um, that she had um, that I was transcribing. Um, she also created coloring books and different things of the biota of the region. And I was taught that um, by listening to her. She often didn't speak it directly to me, but she spoke it around me. But more importantly, I watched her live that. And by the end of my time on the mountain, when I chose to leave, I used the knowledge that she had imparted in me to fill myself with literal nutrients from the land. And those nutrients gave me the spiritual, I think, courage to lead the patriarchal institution of the fields. Is there anything else you want to say about the book that we didn't talk about? Yeah, I'll say that I am so grateful for um, a few people who really showed up for me during the process. Um, the agent who contacted me was so wonderful in um, her ability to stand back and say, I'm on your side here, but also I'm going to push you. <laughs> like I'm pushing you forward. And I, I honestly do not think I could have written the book without her. And then the editor who acquisitioned the book, um, the woman who acquisitioned the book to Betsy also chose to be the editor of the book. And she asked to see a sample chapter. And then she said, all right, if you want to show me something along the way, that's wonderful. If you just want to go ahead and write this book any way you want to write it, um, I'm hands off. 
and just take it. You have a voice and I just want you to use it. And I want to say that those two women were just just incredibly supportive in terms of their trust that I would find my way with material that I was scared of. And then I also want to say that the man that um, I married when I was very young, um, I showed him. I'm not in the habit of showing anybody drafts. Um, so I didn't show it to him till it was after I turned it into my editor. But I was very nervous because I um, he he's not in the book, but he was on those trips with, you know, he was he's one of the boys. He's not just he's not named and he's older than I am. And his reaction was just so kind. And so just he was in tears and just said, thank you for telling a story that we never talk about things I didn't even know about you. And then he admitted to me for the first time that he he's like, I was so psychologically, emotionally, sexually abused at in my experience. And it's not something that I ever felt I had the right to talk about. And you writing this has given me the ability to have this conversation. So I want to thank him too for um for being so honest and available during this process. Um, maybe not during my writing as much as like after, but that's that's been huge to me. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. I'm going to read from Ursula Le Guin, who has written so many beautiful things. But this is for um, an actually in a commencement address that she gave at Renoir. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Literature takes shape and life in the body, in the womb of the mother tongue, always. And the fathers of culture get anxious about paternity. They start talking about legitimacy. They steal the baby. They ensure by every means that the artist, the writer, is male. This involves intellectual abortion by centuries of women artists infanticide of works by women writers and a whole medical corps of sterilizing critics working to purify the canon to reduce the subject matter and style of literature to something Ernest Hemingway could have understood. But this is our native tongue. This is our language they're stealing. We can read it and we can write it and we can bring to it what it is it needs. The woman's tongue, the earth and savor that relatedness which speaks dark in the mother tongue, but clear as sunlight in women's poetry and in our novels and stories, our letters, our journals, our speeches. I love that because I, I read that um, long before I thought about writing a book. Um, and I thought about how much the language I was taught was the language of men, but the language inside of me was the language of a woman. And I feel that that language is in nature and nature is a large part of the book, that it was the nature. And I feel that it was the nature of the earth, but also the nature of women um, that saved me. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So something I had a really difficult time um, doing right at the beginning of the book was trying to show my mother in the context because she really didn't speak to us a lot. And so I was trying to give her character truth and weight without having very much dialogue, since dialogue was not something that we spent very much time in with our mother. Um, and yet, especially on the mountain in the earlier, she was fully present physically. 
um, even when she wasn't speaking to us. So I struggled with this. And this is very early in the book. In this passage, it's not my mother I'm speaking of. My mother's in the back at the Devil's, um, the devil's Punch Bowl. And I did not talk to my mother about what my father would sometimes do. And I wasn't sure what she knew or didn't know. And so in this passage, I was trying to show that she had access to this knowledge, but I didn't know how to speak of it. So I don't know what she's talking about. I reach up and touch my swollen cheek, and I imagine maybe it has begun to bruise. I tell her my dad didn't want to come today, didn't want me to come today, but that I came anyway. Oh, honey, she says, with a tenderness that makes my skin crawl. I don't know why this bothers her, but I don't want to embarrass or disappoint mother. So I feign laughter as if I'm a silly girl. I make up a story that I think won't offend her. No, I say, I'm kidding. I ran into a tree branch yesterday when we were sledding. She exhales in a way that sounds like a whistle, either because she believes me or because she's relieved not to have to inquire further. I make a, vote, a note to avoid her, like I avoid everyone I've ever met who doesn't belong to the field. Before I leave, she hands me a pamphlet. Here, honey, this will tell you what you need to know. It's a government brochure about national monuments and forest service lands across our mountain range. But I already know where I am on this mountain, even in the dark, because my uncle has given me the sky. Do you want to say more about why you shared that one? Because the woman who worked at a, a nature center um, suspected that I was being abused. And I lied to her about it. And so she did her job, which was teach me about nature. Um, and I wanted to show that there, it, that it's complicated, that even men who are abusive could teach you things. And even women who wanted to help you would cover up things that they didn't want to know. And that it wasn't only my mom who did that, but that there's a system in place. And that without that system being in place, um, I don't think that abuse would, people wouldn't get away with the abuse that they get away with. And so even a very kind people refuse to talk. Where do you write? Uh, I almost always write uh, laying down on my back by hand on the couch near a window in the living room. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So I have not spent um, the majority of my life in formal writing. Um, I've been a teacher and a mother. And so I think that I have not ever had to escape writing. I think that um, writing takes place in my head all the time, wherever I go. And that um, the act of deliberately putting it on a page, whether it's on a computer or whether it's on um, handwritten, um, that everything else I do leads me to that. And it just took me a really, really, really long time to start to put my own words down in a way that I would ever let anybody read. I mean, it's taken me a very long time to get the courage to do that. So now I don't, I don't look to run away from it. I look to run toward it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Interestingly, nobody. <laughs> I do not show, uh, my work has, I've never shown anybody my writing. Uh, and I have just stacks and stacks and stacks of journals, including, including the original work that I had kept that I talk about in the book, in the Sears catalog and in the original notebooks. Um, I've kept everything. I've been meticulous about that, but I have, um, I've not begun to write publicly, I would say until the last four years. And, um, 
usually the first person I show is when I send it to an editor and I don't show anyone until it comes out in print. <laughs> like The first person I, yeah, I just turn it in. How have you dealt with rejection? I don't advocate this, by the way, uh, but I try to not put myself in positions to get rejected. I know nobody wants rejection, but I have not. I haven't experienced much in this area yet um, because I feel like my whole life, I felt very rejected by my family and my community. And so that's probably why I didn't share my writing is because I wasn't ready for the rejection. So now I'm open for it. (laughs) Now I know it's going to be here and it'll stay with me. And what is your favorite word? Idiosyncratic. Michelle, thanks so much. I really appreciate you spending this time with me and sharing about your life and your book. I'm really honored. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If you like today's show with Michelle Dowd, author of the memoir, Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult, check out my interview with Tara Westover on her memoir, Educated. We talked about what she values most from her childhood, the meaning of selfhood, and the power of education. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 395 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Rebecca Mackay, and Maggie Smith. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.